0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by both my co-hosts today, Medea Ocher and Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, you guys. It's so nice to be here with both of you. And we are doing our annual best of episode. And we're going to go through some of our favorite books, movies, television shows, podcasts, scandals, objects. I don't know if I'm missing anything of 2021. And I think we'll start as always with books. Eric, you go first. Tell us your favorite book of 2021.
1: So this one was kind of tough to winnow down from everything that I read this year so I decided to lead with what I found most inspiring and what kind of stuck with me throughout the year. And that was Sarah Shulman's Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP New York, 1987 to 1993. Now, I mean, this is a beautifully expansive history of a really diverse and kind of difficult to wrap one's arms around, a pathbreaking group of AIDS activists. And I found it, as I believe both of you did as well, by turns, humbling and incredibly inspiring. You know, like I kept thinking, what am I doing with my life? You know, why am I not getting out there and organizing and being part of some activist moment? But I will also say that reading a story about albeit a very different epidemic in the midst of our own pandemic, I found oddly heartening to see how people come together in the face of an incredible health challenge and one that, especially in the era of AIDS, the government and media and much of the people in power were doing nothing about.
2: Yeah, that seems like a really worthy choice. Yeah, and
0: we also had a great conversation with Sarah on the show.
1: Yes, exactly. Also one of my highlights from the year. Same. So what about you, Kate? What did you love reading this year?
0: I'm impressed you only chose one book because I have many. But this is the <laughs> only category where I feel like I actually was thoroughly engaged throughout the year with books that came out and with like the movies and the TV, not as much. Okay, so my first two are Amiya Srinivasan, The Right to Sex, and Jacqueline Rose's Violence and Violence Against Women, both of whom we had on the show. Both these books were just amazing. I don't often read feminist philosophy, but I'm so glad I did with in both of these cases because these books just really like got to really, really hard to answer questions about sexual dynamics between people. Dealt with, you know, masculinity, I think in a really generous way. And especially with Jacqueline Rose's book, kind of asking these hard questions about why men do things that they do that include violence. And I was just really, my mind was blown with the depth of thought in both these cases of these books. So those were really important to me. And both that I would continue to revisit. It's kind of a cheat because I know this book came out last year, but I only read it this year. It was Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor Feelings, yeah. an Asian American Reckoning. That book was so great. Just asking questions of about race in America, but also um, it had this one chapter about Kathy Park Hong being in college and her college friends and their art making. And it was one of the best writings on friendship that I've read in a long time that I felt like really captured the kind of dynamics of women friendship in a way that I just loved. And I could have kept on reading even just that one chapter. And I really loved Rachel Kushner's essay collection that came out that we also had her on the show. The Hard Crowd really loved her Girl on a Bike essay. And I was thinking of it actually as I drove into Mexico recently being afraid that I didn't have my passport. My passport was expired. and I was like, oh my God, I'm driving into Mexico with an expired passport. But of course, in that essay, Rachel like drives from the tip of Baja to the bottom speeding on a motorcycle, like 100 miles per hour. So it's just like, I'm such a wimp. And so it was good to have that in mind. She gets in a really bad accident. So I don't think she makes it all the way down. But it also had really great essays on leftist 70s politics in Italy and the author Nanny Balestrini that I loved and really good things on contemporary art. I just thought it was a really well-rounded collection and something that I would and plan to revisit. Okay, I know I'm going off. And then just in terms of some fiction I read that I really enjoyed, I reviewed Dennis Cooper's new book, I Wished, which is his first novel in a decade about George Miles, the muse of his George Miles cycle. And I read a lot of those books in the, I guess I read them in the 2000s. They started to come out in the end of the 80s and 89. And I remember being so horrified and shocked by them and like holding the book away from my face, you know, because they would talk about cutting out someone's ass and just all these things that were so vile and gruesome. I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna like reread a lot of those books to write my review, but I'm really afraid. Like I'm scared to revisit them because I remember them horrifying me so much, but also loving them. I did reread one the first called Closer, which despite like a lot of the violence in it, it's one of the most beautiful books I've read in so long.
1: That's the thing about Dennis Cooper, right? Is that it's like you're both like horrified by the often quite as Kate is describing, like the gory details of, like, really extreme sex and violence. But it is also, I don't know, I feel like you learn from his novels a lot about human nature and, like, about the weird interactions between people, particularly between adults and children. So it's like there's this uncanny knowing about those novels that you always have to hold in kind of this weird tension with the true horror of, like, what happens in them often.
0: Exactly. And just even on a sentence level, and I found this in I Wish Too, which is such a beautiful book and slightly less gruesome than a lot of the George Miles cycles, just that the writing, Dennis Cooper started as a poet. So always his sentences are kind of immaculate and exquisite. And um, in Closer, it's like, you know, the imagery is can be really dark, but then the sentence itself is so beautiful. Kind of like the surround sound experience of having both forces at play. I love that. And I thought this new book was wonderful. And I hope that Dennis will continue to write more novels because he hasn't been writing as many as he's been working on super dark films in more recent years that are really great to see as well. Also have a lot of the elements that we're describing in his books. Okay, And then another book I loved was Little Joy by Cecilia Pavone which I wrote about for LARB. And that was a collection from Semio Text. She's an Argentine writer. And the stories are just so funny. A lot of them are autobiographical. It's, they're about being poets or artists in this kind of scene in Buenos Aires. And they can get a little bit outlandish at times. They're really voice-driven. They made me laugh out loud. And they also made me feel excited about the power of art and creativity. And they're really short. They're good length. And lastly, I'm reading right now this book called The Twilight Zone by Nona Fernandez. That is really intense. Speaking of dark beauty, really intense. It seems like a distant relative of Marguerite Duras. It's about trying to reimagine the Pinochet regime in Chile and a lot of the disappearances that took place and just using different sources. Like in the book, she's working on documentaries. And so She's going through testimony of torture by people. So it's kind of like both the numbing quality of that, the desensitizing quality of looking at something that way, using it to make art or to make a documentary, and then the actual mental work of trying to imagine this torture that took place. And it's really beautifully and inventively written. I believe it was nominated for a National Book Award in translation. The translation came out this year. So that book is excellent. I recommend it.
1: Wow, I feel like I have my whole 2022 early like <laughs> reading list like slated by just all of those amazing recommendations, Kate. I know, um, me too. Speaking of Medea, what books were you recommending this year?
2: Okay, so I also had kind of a hard time choosing between all of the books I read this year just because I had like an unusual amount of time to read. And, okay, one of them I'll get out of the way because both Kate and I chose it. And that's The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century by Amiya Srinivasan. Also thought that was really fantastic and good. And like, just sort of does what like a great philosophy and criticism should, which is change the way you think about things and does it really deftly and easily almost. Like she seems to have no problem doing it, (laughs) which is like a sign of like a truly exceptional mind and writer, I think. The other one that I chose is the Copenhagen trilogy: Childhood, Youth, and Dependency by Tove Ditlevsen, and that book oh, was yeah. published oh. this year. But like, I mean, she lived right after the war, the First World War, and she died in 1976. She's a Danish poet and author. This is memoirs of her life, and you know, I think there's times when you have memoirs when the author like resists vulnerability or performs vulnerability in really sort of a predictable ways. And Tova never does that. She's like sort of just splayed out on the page in like every possible way. And it's a really amazing memoir of like childhood, poverty, neediness, but also it's about this person becoming a poet and a writer, which is all she ever wanted to be. She also becomes an addict. She marries, she has kids. It's a really fantastic book. I really recommend it that's the Copenhagen trilogy. And and you then, read okay, all of those daya? You I read did. all of those? They came out together in one book put out by FSG. And they're long but they're it's a really fascinating read because you just kind of watch her grow up. When I mean, you watch her grow up into like a really difficult, needy, desirous person. <laughs> <laughs> and that is it's a good reading. Okay, and then my the third one that I have that came out this year, Second Place by Rachel Cusk. And I'm not sure that this is like the best Rachel Cusk book. I think the trilogy is better. The Outline Trilogy is better than Second Place. But Second Place is about this woman who starts this residency and this artist comes to residency and they have this like aggressive, erotic, hate-filled relationship between each other Her husband lives in this residency also, and the artist brings his partner. But there's this sex-filled hate tension between them. That, as you were talking, Kate, I was like, actually, like my book kind of it is also sort of about like the violence that women sometimes arouse in other people, and certain kinds of women arouse it in really different ways. So second place is kind of about what happens when this artist comes to this residency that this woman hosts and that she's kind of obsessed with him and he detests, both detests and needs her obsession. And the artist is based on D.H. Lawrence, is that right? Yeah. So the other fun thing about this is that this like opens up into a real life scenario, which is that there was a woman named Mabel Dodge Luhan. Yes who had a residency in New Mexico and she had D.H. Lawrence come. And so this Cusk book is based on the relationship between Mabel and D.H. Lawrence. And you can buy her letters. Mabel Lujan wrote letters about D.H. Lawrence's stay at this residency. You can buy the collection of those letters. And I did. I didn't read them. (laughs) But I thought it was a fun thing. Yeah, maybe next year. And I thought it was a fun thing that this, but kind of opens up into like a real life story. Yeah, those are my three. Nice. Okay. And they're like quick plugins for things that don't need to be plugged by me. But this year I had time to read the classics. And so I read The Idiot by Dostoevsky. and
1: Oh, so good.
2: Which is so good. And the volume two of In Search of Lost Time by Proust. And you know... I recommend both of
0: those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard those are pretty good.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're pretty good. It's a safe,
0: it's a safe doing. You're making me really jealous because I always mean to read the classics and I thought I was off to a really good start with The which I know you love. Both of you guys really love mm. that book, right? Yeah. And I was yeah, like, I was, started reading it. I was like, oh, this is a page turner. That's Charlotte Bronte knows what she's doing. But then I put it down and I haven't returned to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, I was loving it. I just, reading the classics is kind of the best.
1: You've read Wuthering yeah. Heights, right, Kate? Silence. That's, no, 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 no. Because it's worth, if you have not read it, that's a, one of the best Bronte. No- I mean, it's incredible. I know. Like, and I know. You're just every swept away and it's dark and brooding and it's beautiful.
0: I don't know why I always feel like I need real time to myself to read great books. Not that the books that I just all plugged weren't great, but maybe they were a bit easier or something than a classic. I just, I always feel like I need to just be somewhere alone, uninterrupted yeah. to get into a truly classic, great book. But Wuthering Heights on my list, the Let's on my list. I mean, A lot of them are. Let's move to a movie, a movie that you loved, or movies that you loved.
1: So, in this category, I have several choices that I thought were great. I'll start with "The Eyes of Tammy Faye," directed by Michael Showalter and starring Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. It's a story of Tammy Faye Baker, who was a famous televangelist, one of the early televangelists, actually. And first of all, I mean, Jessica Chastain is an absolute vision as Tammy Fay Baker. I mean, she nails everything. And you could, I could have watched her for three hours. Andrew Garfield, to be fair, does like a good job on his own, but it is a beautiful movie, great performances, loved it, cannot recommend it highly enough. The other ones that I liked are Dune, which was directed by Denis Villeneuve, which honestly, it has all the problems that the original, you know, kind of the -the over-the-top Orientalism and other things that were issues in the source material are also issues in the adaptation. But what I would like to direct listeners to is The gorgeous, brutalist architecture that's featured in the movie. I just could have lived in some of those long pan shots forever. And also, it has some of the best sound design that I felt I heard this year. So really, really love that movie. Another one, mostly for kids, but also for adults with no kids, like myself and many of my gay friends, is Luca, directed by Giacomo Gianniotti. And that is a very sweet story about two boys who are also sea monsters, and then they come on shore to kind of try to live their own life and hijinks ensue. It's super sweet. It has been read by many gay men as a story that is about the gay experience. But to be clear on the record, the director has denied that that is true. I think that's definitely a reading that you could have of the movie. And I think that's why it's resonated with me and a number of other gay men that I know. The final movie that I wanted to recommend is a kind of genre-breaking documentary called Flea. And it was directed by Jonas Poor Rasmussen. And it follows the story of Amin, who's an Afghan refugee, who starts to kind of reveal the dark story of his past when he fled Afghanistan just as he's on the verge of marrying his husband in Denmark. So he kind of wants to tell this story, but he's worried about how his husband's going to react because he's kind of never shared this deeply personal and very harrowing story with anyone else. The thing that's really interesting about this movie is not just the story, but that it's all done through this beautiful animation, which is a kind of departure for the typical documentary. It feels a little bit, not quite in the style of Waking Life, but somewhat similar to that. And it just works really beautifully in this movie to kind of bring out the textures and the feelings of a mean story. So those are my four recommendations for movies that I very much enjoyed this year.
0: Great. I wanted to see that movie flea for sure. Okay. Well, my first choices did not come out this year, but I I, I watched <laughs> that's okay. them this it's year. A world yeah, now. That's yeah. exactly. I noticed that lots of like the New Yorker will just randomly be like, oh, this movie streaming and review it. So in the spirit of Richard Brody, I am going to say that this is the year that I got into the Softy Brothers as directors. Ooh. I know they're much loved and I can't believe I had never seen any of their movies until this year. But I started with, you know, there's Uncut Gems. I know everyone loved that and it was great. But I started with their second feature, which is called Daddy Long Legs. And it's online. It's so funny. It's so weird. It's about a very... Charismatic but neglectful father who has like his two weeks with his kids and is still trying to work as a projectionist and, you know, finds creative ways to take care of them, including giving them a mild sedative so they'll sleep longer when he can't be in the apartment and then they don't wake up. And it's like days and days of him being so freaked out that he's killed them. And finally, they do wake up, but it's like you find him charming at first. I think it's a somewhat autobiographical film about their own father. You find him charming at first, and then more and more, you start to question who this person is. And even though he seems charming, he also just seems almost monstrous. So that one is really great. And then I also watched their movie, Heaven Knows What, about these homeless drug addict kids in New York City that was really intense and so good. And based on the writings of the actress who stars in it, Arielle Holmes, who was, you know, lived on the street and they met her just like in the subway. The stories are extreme and the movie does feel authentic, but it's not like such a verite. It's also kind of stylized. It's a really interesting mix and it definitely like kind of clued me into people I would see on the street. You know, like you often see them and you don't necessarily see things from their perspective. I really did think this movie was from their perspective. And it also has like, you know, these kind of like entertaining outlandish moments where they'll, you know, they're like stealing mail. They'll like have all these different scams or like stealing energy drinks and then reselling them to bodegas. I think that are based on like the kind of ways people survive on the street. Mm. That movie is just so intense and so good, really stuck in my mind. And I also appreciated the use of non-actors. This year, just for a project I'm working on, I read Cassavetti's on Cassavetti's and John Cassavetti's attitude towards actors and acting is like so inspiring, of course. And he loved to use non-actors as well. And speaking of that, Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Oh, I
1: haven't seen it. You liked it? You
0: know, it's like this kind of film that like there's a lot of problems with it, but despite those problems, you know, I walked away from it feeling really moved and happy and so I did like it although like it's not like I watched it not thinking like oh this is perfect I could like see the issues but I think a lot of that really is from the performance of Alana Haim which everyone I know is like raving about Mm -hmm. she wasn't an actress and I have to say just because I'm a hater I was like oh oh not an actress huh just got cast as the lead in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie huh like Wish I could have been that lucky, you know, like I felt like that's so unfair. She's already a rock star. Now she's going to be a movie star too, but can't hate because she was so excellent. She was so good. I just loved her and she had such energy and spunk and she really made the movie. And I thought that she did a great job. So it's kind of like all the different styles of performing and acting and like even the conversation recently about Jeremy Strong and all his method qualities and oh, all that yeah, kind of yeah. like maybe acting isn't that complicated. Like maybe it's just about kind of playing a version of yourself or like being yourself too. I think maybe people overthink it a bit.
1: Ooh, Anyhow. Fired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anyhow, but yeah, so I did really enjoy that. Especially her and Cooper Hoffman, Seymour Hoffman's son, who was also a non-actor. I thought he did a great job. And then finally, one of my closest friends is a filmmaker named Courtney Stevens. And she released a feature this year called Terra Femme, where she went through many, many archives of like amateur travelogue films made by women up until maybe about the 50s, but right around the time where people could shoot on like 16 and the home movie cameras became available. It's really interesting because, of course, with a lot of the footage, there's similarities of what these women shot and also... Just kind of questioning, do women look at the world any differently than men? Mm. Then I think at the same time, going through the material, she realized how much of the outlook of these women was kind of shaped by imperialist, their imperialist backgrounds and also by colonialism and just the way that they encountered these like, quote, quote, foreign cultures. That's kind of a thread in the film too. It's You're exhilarated by this idea that these women were finally able to be out in the world, but then also how they were out in the world or why they were out in the world is taken into account throughout the film. So it pulls out these kind of different emotions. And she did a live accompaniment when she would screen it often. So she would be reading the narration. So she would be there in the movie theater reading her voiceover for the film, which I thought was such a cool element and just harkens back to the early days of film where there would be, you know, like live music accompaniment or it added another dimension. So that was wonderful. I highly recommend Terra Fem by Cordy Stevens.
1: Awesome. Medea, what about you?
2: I had a hard time choosing movies this year just because I felt like watching so many of them streaming kind of flattened my experience of sure. a lot of them. Yeah. And like it didn't really, I didn't have the usual sort of like really nice out-of-body experience that you sometimes like can get in a theater when you're watching a movie. So it's kind of hard to choose. But okay, I came up with two. One, my first one is Annette by Leos Scoraks. <laughs> <laughs> Leos Gox, I think is maybe how you say it. And that, I didn't anticipate liking that movie. It's a musical. It stars Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard as the two main characters in the film. And then the third character is a puppet. And all the music is by Sparks. And, you know, it had like an initial sort of rejection of what I thought was going to be sort of like a precious... Quirkiness, or what I thought was going to be uh, performative weirdness, and it actually ends up being like just a really beautiful film about like family and love, and like what you can forgive your family members for, and what you can still love them for, and what you can't forgive. And in the end, like the music, as just <laughs> as kind of odd as it is, and the performances as odd as they are, are really compelling. But well, they're really compelling and really fun. And the singing puppet is like. Just weird enough to keep being an emotionally worked for me to have a puppet of a child in the movie. So that's Annette. And then my second choice was Licorice Pizza, also by Paul Thomas Anderson. And I totally agree, Kate. Like, there's like things that are not perfect about it. And which is weird because I think so many of his movies are perfect, are kind of like made to be perfect in a way where they're very finely tuned. And this one isn't really that, like, more messy. I just like, I thought it was really nice to have the stakes be so low and like have the stakes just be like two people in love, maybe. And I kind of enjoyed that. And I kind of enjoyed like the episodic nature of it where they kind of just wander around the valley doing sort of funny semi-legal things. And both of the actors, I agree, are totally great. Those are my two.
0: So moving from the big screen to the smaller screen, or maybe these days it's the exact same screen, unfortunately. Eric, what are your favorite television shows from 2021?
1: Okay, so there are three shows this year that I thoroughly enjoyed, 100% recommend, and then two that I think at the very least I should give an honorable mention to. So the three that I was super excited about, first out of the gate, is an HBO series called Hacks, It stars Gene Smart as a legendary Las Vegas stand-up comedian who reminded me a lot, actually, of Joan Rivers, and the setup is basically this comedian has lost her star, you know, her star is descending, I guess, and so they hire a writer, played by Hannah Einbender, to kind of work with her and help her write material and get her career back on track, It ends up being, besides the wonderful performances from both Gene Smart and Hannah Einbender, which I I could have watched for hours, they were just electric together, I thought it ends up being a really interesting exploration of kind of intergenerational dynamics, you know, on topics such as feminism, how humor works, how business works, and seeing those two kind of generations between the Gene Smart character and the Hannah Einbender character reconcile with one another and kind of help each other to see the other's perspective I thought was really fresh and interesting and something that we don't typically see. The other show that I really loved this year was from Disney, so it's one of Marvel's uh, now owned by Disney properties, and that was WandaVision with Elizabeth Olsen playing Wanda Maximoff as she deals with her grief over the loss of her husband Vision, the cyborg. And what she does basically in the wake of his death is create her own fantasy world um, that, through magic and, and other things that I won't give away. But she creates a fantasy world that basically replicates the American sitcoms that she saw as a child. And so what's really cool about this series is that it kind of walks through as you move forward in the series, the changes in the sitcom genre from the, I believe it starts in kind of the late 60s, kind of early 70s, Sitcoms, And then moves through to the early 2000s sitcoms and kind of just even getting to see the show pays really great attention to the details and the nuances, you know, kind of both the sets, but also the ways that characters relate to each other and the catchphrases and the culture at the time. It does a great job of pulling all those things together and letting you see the change over time, which I found just really fascinating from a genre perspective. So another series I really loved was HBO's White Lotus, which I guess you could describe as kind of a murder mystery set on a luxury resort in Hawaii, um, but which I thought was a really great exploration of race and class conflict with both beautiful cinematography and a truly breathtaking performance by Jennifer Coolidge, who plays this ditzy, rich woman whose desire to be seen as a quote-unquote good person is thwarted at almost every turn by the utter tone deafness that she has as a result of her privilege. Um, I love watching Jennifer Coolidge. I'm not alone in that, I know. Um, but she was just truly wonderful. And again, I, I just was sucked into this series and couldn't get enough of it. My honorable mentions this year start off with uh, another Disney slash Marvel series that was called Loki. And this is centered on Tom Hiddleston's rendition of the trickster god from Norse mythology. And like WandaVision, it does a great job kind of manipulating genre. This one looks at kind of a hard-boiled detective type thing. Plus, there's lots of, you know, fantasy and other things baked in there. Um, But it was also just great fun to watch. And I really enjoy this character who, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but my husband always says that I remind him of Loki as this kind of trickster god that tells lies and is constantly trying to get out of scrapes. And then the last one I have is um, a Hulu show, which is The Great, now in its second season. I think I recommended this last year, the first season, but I can promise listeners that the second season is just as good. Um, And this one explores the period of Catherine the Great's ascension to becoming empress of Russia after the forced abdication of her husband, Peter. And it's a story of also how she's trying to change Russia in the mold of her Enlightenment ideals, and that ends up with a decidedly mixed result. Dakota Fanning and Nicholas Holt's amazing performances kind of make up for what is admittedly very fast and loose interpretation of the incredible history of Catherine the Great. And like I said, it is just, again, a wonderful series to very bingeable and easy to get yourself lost in. So those are my picks. Wow.
0: Okay. Those are nice and um, make me feel even worse about the fact that I had to get kind of creative about how I answered this one, because (laughs) as I've mentioned before, the only television I watch is super trashy. And I just, I don't think it's like, could I recommend someone to take Valium or smoke a cigarette? You know, like I wouldn't feel right. I wouldn't feel right recommending that, but that's how, that's kind of how I approach television in this, um, you know, that I, I, I use it to really relax, not, not for anything else. So, I know people say it's a golden age of television, but because of the pandemic, I also think it's a golden age of Zoom, of Zoom events, mm. which I watch <laughs> on my laptop just like I would watch television. So I'm going to recommend some excellent Zoom events um, that wow. I that I watched this year. And the first one was Haymarket uh, had an event called Abolition, Cultural Freedom, and Liberation with a not so superstar lineup of Mike Davis, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Kianga Yamada Taylor. Um, oh, I
1: love all of those people. I can't nuts. even imagine what that conversation yeah, it was like. like yeah. Wow, well,
0: let's just get all the most brilliant people in the world together and let them talk. Yeah. You know, Kianga Yamada Taylor was the was the moderator. She did an excellent job of because it was a very wide ranging conversation, obviously. So she just kind of moved it along in a, in a Wonderful way, and it was just just listening to these people with so much experience, mm. so many years of activism, so many years of of reading and writing, just like had this forum to all talk together. I think they're all friends. It was amazing, and to feel like wow, this is like this is really special. This is an amazing outcome of the pandemic that events like this are happening. Similarly, um, the Mac Lecture at the Walker Art Center this year had Sadia Hartman, Frank Wilderson, and Arthur Jaffa. Just kind of shooting, also all friends, kind of just shooting the the s and, and and talking about talking about questions that I don't remember who the moderator was, but she was excellent as well. Um, that's also online, I believe. Uh, the Hammer Museum for its biennial uh, Made in L.A. had just a ton of great conversations between people, kind of like mm. hanging out, playing records, talking about beyond Baroque in the eighties. You know, just a, a totally Uh, inventive solution to the fact that they didn't have live events for that. And I I genuinely have to say, I'm not just saying this because of um, my association with LARB, the semi-public intellectual sessions that LARB did Mm. were were really were great. And um, I especially love the first one that they did. Where's the discourse um, that had Daphne Brooks and Sarah Marshall, some other and other wonderful people um, talking about you know the difference between academia and uh, magazine writing, and discourse, and publishing, and just like really, just and and people seeming to be just really open um, and intimate. And I think that maybe it is that weird Zoom thing of you know not being in a big space, just being like in your own space, talking to someone that you know has its detriments, but also can have this kind of intimate conversation that you might not feel the same way being in a big you know auditorium watching two people on stage who just probably wouldn't get quite as comfortable. Um, So all those, I mean, the LARP one, I believe you have to maybe kick down some cash to, to get, to get, but
2: I believe the other ones should be online and they're all totally worth watching. They sound really good. And now I'm embarrassed to go after that because that also (laughs) (laughs) educational (laughs) and mind expanding. Whereas um, mine are pretty predictable and one is kind of like a Valium, which, but you know, I don't mind recommending that people take a Valium once in a while. Okay. So mine are succession. So I, I started watching succession this year, um, because at first I was like, you know what, who gives a shit about really, really wealthy people and their problem was like, I don't care. I'm not going to watch it. And then I just sort of gave in and decided to watch it when I had time and then i loved it obviously as most of the world does um and just finished the season 3 a couple of days ago and you know what it's it's really worth it for the the power dynamics the it's very funny they insult each other all the time which is really good to watch and um and i'm on the side of jeremy strong in this debate i think he takes his craft seriously and you know what good for him i'm supportive so succession is my number one and then my number two is something i just i watched the latest season just a couple of days ago is that true yeah maybe like last week um and it's the great british bake-off which is
1: oh yes totally fun totally fun. (laughs)
2: Totally wonderful. It really is like a it's like a Xanax because everybody's so nice to each other. Yes. They're just making these sort of elaborate desserts that they are dedicated to various members of their families. They share memories. They're all there's not a there seems to be not a competitive bone in anybody's body. You know, if I was there, I would resolutely like watch everybody to make sure I was I was the best. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and resent the people who are doing better than I was. But this seems to be like, it's a show about like camaraderie and getting along and producing really beautiful baked goods. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And there's like, it's just such a beautiful collection of like sweet personalities and sweet desserts. And so like, I don't know, I really can't recommend it highly enough. I thought it was like just such a bomb. It
1: was so lovely to watch. <laughs> very, very quickly to add to that, I can highly recommend Nadia Hussein's Nadia Bakes cookbook. She was a contestant on the great British Bake Off. And her um raspberry amaretti cookies have been a hit whenever I have made them. Mm-hmm. They're incredible. So definitely I believe recommend. It.
2: That actually, when she won, this is not really a spoiler. She won a couple of years ago, but yes, and then you know, went on to bake a cake for the queen and whatever. But when she won, that was probably one of the moments when I most sobbed.
1: At, yes. Oh, I totally <laughs> agree. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It was just so heartwarming and lovely. And she was so deserving and she
1: did such a good job. And she um, is and so I'm heartwarming sure. and lovely. Like, she's just, it's beautiful.
2: It's, yeah, there's not, there's nothing bad to say about it. I have nothing bad to say about it, um, which is so rare. I have something bad to say about almost everything I love. <laughs> Same. <laughs> wow. That's, that's yeah. a great recommendation in that case. I want to just love
0: something without any, uh,
1: any hesitation. Any yeah.
2: Yeah, totally. So
0: let's, um, let's move on to podcasts. Eric, hit it. What's your podcast?
1: So I would be remiss if I did not give a little bit of opportunity to promote the five shows that I worked on this year and which I'm really proud of. So those are um, the first three are available on Audible or on Audible Plus, and they include Bitter Blood, Kasem vs. Kasem, which was a dramatic and fascinating story of radio icon Casey Kasem, who some of you listeners might remember as the host of America's Top 40 uh, back when we all listened to the radio regularly And it recounts both, like, Casey's rise to fame and the bitter battle and bizarre at certain turns over his life and legacy between the children from his first marriage and his second wife. This was, again, like I said, it's dramatic and fascinating and a a unique look at a part of Casey Kasem's story that I did not know before working on this podcast. The second one is The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror, and that's, I guess I could describe it as a sort of prequel to the wildly popular Dirty John podcast and also TV miniseries. And that looks at the story of John Meehan's first wife, like the title says. Uh, It was Tanya Bales, and it's a harrowing story of both the abuse that she faced from him, but also what I kept walking away with was the incredible story of her survival and just I was in awe of Tanya's power and resilience in the face of what would have been for me like utterly stopping madness. And then the third one for Audible was the murder of Robert Wan. So this is a bizarre and fascinating unsolved murder case from D.C. in which a a young lawyer who stays over at the house of his best friend, uh, who also is living with two of his partners, one is his husband and then the other one is a younger partner who is the third in the relationship. And suddenly he ends up dead, stabbed multiple times. Uh, The details of the case are really fascinating and bizarre. Like I said, it's still unsolved. Um, And so the story that we tell is one about a salacious investigation that involved kinky sex and high-powered movers and shakers in D.C. politics and questions about how homosexuality or homophobia may have impacted the prosecution and investigation of that case and then kind of really trying to get to the bottom of what happened. And then the last two are, um, these are both on from iHeart, so they're free wherever you get your podcasts. And that was Queen of the Con, The Irish Heiress. Uh, this is a story of a guy who woke up one day to realize that his best friend of four years has conned him and many, many other victims from Los Angeles to Belfast out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is a really fun true crime story, right? So it's financial, it's more hijinks and capers, um, but it has so many head-snapping turns and just a really gripping story, really fun. And then the last one is the real killer. So this is a much darker story about a very brutal murder and a traumatized victim who ID'd a suspect who was then given a life sentence. But then 32 years later, she takes it all back. She has a kind of sudden memory and realizes that she identified the wrong guy when she was just a a truly traumatized child. And the show ends up being an exploration of the crime, the conviction, and obviously, as the title suggests, the search for the real killer. So those are shows that I worked on this year and I'm really proud of. But another show that I did not work on, but I truly adored, was from Pineapple Street Media. So it's also available everywhere you get your podcasts. And it's called Welcome to Your Fantasy. And it's a cultural history of the Chippendale dancers who were kind of one of the first global male stripper reviews. Some of you may remember them. There was also, they were kind of sent up on SNL skits with Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley. But it, the whole series is narrated by historian Natalia Petrzella And it's just a great ride through both, like I was saying, that first global male stripper show And about how that show was put together and the economics of the show and how the show was adapted. Um, But then it's also the story of how that show fell apart through kind of very standard issues such as greed, jealousy, um, rage, and kind of a little bit of madness. So it's really, really fun. All of those shows, highly recommend.
0: Nice. Okay. One of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to this year is Ask Herbal Health expert Susan Weed. Um, I love this show cause it's so folksy and, um, yes. it's, it's not like a highly produced podcast. It's just a podcast of this call-in show that Susan Weed, who lives in Woodstock, who's an amazing herbalist and has written tons of books and is not woo woo, you know, is, is not like she's truly brilliant. Um, she has, she can be a little bit of a hard ass and, um, I have friends that have been put off by this because people will sometimes call in and ask like kind of silly questions like, oh, how much, um, you know, I haven't been like having my nettle herbal infusion, you know, is it okay to start doing it again? And then she'll get all mad. She'll be like, would it be okay to eat asparagus? You know, and then they'll be like, uh, I don't know. She'll be like, okay, nettles is a vegetable. It's it's a plant. It's fine to eat as much of it as you want. You know, she'll get all mad, but then other times people will <laughs> call in and be so annoying and be like, oh Susan, I'm feeling sick, you know, like I don't, I don't know what to do. And she'll just be so patient with them and go through everything about their lives and like she she is really like a two-faced Janice at times. Um, <laughs> but she's <laughs> she's incredible. Her wealth of knowledge is insane. I've learned so much um about health from the show and of like Definitely started doing more herbs because of her, and she's and it's also like she'll get into you know debates with people about the vaccine. She's she's not against Western medicine at all, and she's like advocates for Western medicine. Basically, it's like she just truly is someone who seems she's it's like listening to a, a doctor, you know, um, and uh, just the idea of how to take care of yourself. And I know people are really into wellness. She's like the the ultimate wellness icon and she's just so awesome so i love listening to her and it's also like it's her it's like a little assistant who does the who mans the phone lines and so she'll be like we have someone calling from an 845 area code you know now we have a 957 area code i just also like the locality of it and that she talks so much about what's happening in woodstock and then like everyone's Area codes and where they're from. It's great. It's so fun. And so there's that. And I also really was enjoying um, the sellout, which is this LA Taco podcast with also from Smokescreen Media, I believe. So it's it's all about Jose Wizar and this and his many scandals. He was indicted maybe last year, um, and he took tons of bribes. And but he was, you know, he was one of the first immigrants to become a city council member, I believe, you know, he, he had this incredible rise and then, you know, a scandalous fall. And, um, but it's, it's a really good show. And it's also just about like current gentrification in LA.
2: So I, I recommend that one too.
1: That sounds amazing. Medea.
2: Um, I'll do one quick one, which is because all my podcasts have been kind of stable lately. You know, I've just been listening to the same ones I've been listening to for years. Um, But one I started recently is called Celebrity Book Club with Stephen and Lily. And they're two very funny people who read a celebrity memoir and then sort of discuss it on the show. The latest one that I listened to was Peggy Guggenheim's memoir. And they both sort of embody Peggy Guggenheim and her bohemian, wealthy, you know darling, this is horrid sort of lifestyle. And um, it's really a lot of fun. I highly recommend it.
0: Okay. Great. Well, that sounds good. Um, okay. So now just because we're running out of time, I'm going to condense um, these the two categories that we were going to talk about. So we were going to talk about favorite scandals and then favorite objects of, of the year, what got us through, but now it's the same category and it's a
1: it's, uh, host choice. So Eric... Do you take the scandal or do you take the object? I think this time I'm going to go with object. And I actually have two, but they're both related to the morning. So one is seasonal only. And so you'll have to wait until next year to get it. But you should start looking for it in August, as I did, because they sell out quickly. And that is the Bon Maman Advent Calendar. I don't even really love Advent calendars. I've heard that there are ways for um, children to microdose on Christmas. Um, But this one, every adult can get behind. It is 24 days of little jars of jellies, preserves, and honey that you get. It's a new one every day um, with like cherry elderflower. Today's was fig and cardamom spread. So they're just wonderful little jars that you can't get. They don't make these flavors any other time during the year. And they're just a wonderful way to wake up for the first 24 days of December. The other recommendation that I have is the Breville Grind and Brew. It is, I will warn you, a $300 coffee machine, but it, it grinds the beans for you. Bruise them for you. You can set all the different temperature settings, all the strength settings. It is incredible. And I can definitely say that it has improved both my coffee game and by association, my mornings every single morning since I've had it. So 100% recommend. I know it's crazy to spend $300 on basically what is a drip coffee maker, but it is incredible and it looks gorgeous on your counter.
0: Ah. Amazing recommendations! Wow, sounds good. Yeah, I'm gonna look into into that coffee brewer. Me too. (laughs) That's I spent three hundred dollars on a pair of shorts. You know, like so. (laughs) A coffee, a coffee brewer sounds a lot more um, useful. Okay, well, I'll take this scandal and mine are both super obvious. I have to say that when January 6th was first going down, everyone was like, this is awful. This is so awful. Like what a horrible day for our country. But I felt really happy because I felt like it was just the embodiment of the last four years, um, I felt like there was no way for anyone to pretend that like being a Trumpist was taking the upper hand or somehow so moral. Like it was just seemed like, okay, this is the apotheosis of everything that we've been through. And now no one can pretend, you know? And it did seem like either you would have to say, okay, sure. Like yeah, violence, let's just, we'll overthrow the, the government, you know, so that was the tact you had to take, or you had to distance yourself from it, and and pretend, or maybe truly feel like, yeah, my life was on the line, or I don't want to be killed, um, like, what if they would have really killed Mike Pence, it was just, it was getting, like, all the, kind. it, it just seemed so, finally, so real, you know just instead of like a, a stupid fox news debate i was like well this is exactly what you guys have all been pushing for these last 4 years this is truly really? what what you wanted so i felt really good about it at the time and i felt and i felt ha- and it was like the same day that georgia you know that georgia got went went blue like that they announced the Senator results. So I was I had a really nice feeling that day. I was like listening to Arthur Russell in my car and just like then I was switched to the news and I'd be like, oh my God. But um I don't know if I feel that way quite anymore. I think lots of things are gonna come out. And I, I know everyone's saying, oh, it's just like a threat that's that's still there. Um and, and it's and it's really like a, a terrible direction for the country. So maybe it's maybe it's not such a great thing. Um, but I think as more information comes out, it's going to get even more scandalous. That how much it truly was um, an attempt to overthrow the government. Yeah. yeah. So this this that scandal will unfold, and um, I, I don't know. I have to say, on the day, it did make me happy. I felt felt like yeah, no more fronting. That's you guys are are instigating violence and that's what it's always been. And now the whole world knows. And I guess that just felt good. Mm -hmm. And my other, my other um, scandal, I couldn't believe Roe versus Wade. This is not my favorite scandal, but I guess it's the one that seems to galvanize me for the coming year is that Roe versus Wade will possibly be overturned. And we have someone in the Supreme court who thinks it's like, Oh yeah, just get pregnant and uh, give up your child for adoption. No problem. Like, I guess the scandal to me is that people don't understand how like crazy it is to be pregnant. I can't understand how anyone would think that it's just like not a big deal to have a baby or to have a baby and like go to work and then suddenly be like, oh yeah, here I am back at work, not pregnant anymore. And I don't have a baby and I don't really want to talk about why, you know, like, that's that would that's so uncomfortable. That would that's insane. Like just the trauma that you're that you're placing on people. Um and yeah, just I was so scandalized by Amy Coney Barrett suggesting that it was no big whoop just to like, you know, go through childbirth and then give up the baby for adoption. Oh, no problem there, sure. Like, why wouldn't I? So this fight will will definitely um be, be front and center, you know, next year and we all have to really engage on that so that's not my favorite scandal but the one that's energizing me at the moment
2: oh well everybody should get ready to come down into like the <laughs> <most> irrelevant scandal <laughs> that's good we need that too <laughs> um though though in a way it's like similar and that i think one of the things that's really you know maddening about the thing something like the Amy Coney Barrett line of reasoning is that it seems to inhabit like a reality that's completely separate from the objective reality that I I believe we live in, which is that childbirth and pregnancy are both very difficult. And then not to mention giving up a child to adoption be very difficult and difficult, I think is a euphemism. It's probably traumatic is more like it. And so this person also seems to inhabit a different reality, but a much, much stupider one (laughs) and one that really doesn't matter to anyone. But I thought this was a really fun scandal this year, which is, And it kind of just snuck in. It happened right at the end of last year, but um, it's Hilaria Baldwin um, pretending to be Spanish. I thought, and I I warned you guys, I warned you guys to get ready to come down um, to the depths of, of dumbness. But I really love this because... Again, so if people aren't aware of what this, is, and I just feel I feel stupid kind of going back into it, but um, Hilaria Baldwin is Alec Baldwin's wife. She is an American uh, white woman who for many years pretended to be Spanish. She put on an accent. She pretended not to know various words in English. And she she pretended to be a, a woman from Spain, um, which she is not. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's not, not at all. She's not, this, any, yes. any connection to Spain in her family? Sure. No. Her white parents do have a, a home in Spain. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but there is no connection otherwise. So uh, I just thought this was so funny. And it's and hilarious it's it's hilarious and i and part of part of the funny aspect of it is that she kind of just doubled down and and kept pretending like she was spanish even though again all evidence points to the contrary um and i just thought this was this was so much fun to have something that mattered so little but was such a funny thing to watch unfold um and that the stakes were were so low, um, but again, really just kind of a delight to witness. Oh, the other thing I was going to choose was the Gilead Maxwell trial, but it's so dark and so deep, and, yeah. and so many people um, hurt that uh, it it didn't seem it didn't seem appropriate. So Hilary Baldwin, who hurts no one by pretending to be Spanish, but amuses many, um, except for Spanish people you know, I wonder, I, yeah, we should ask some. I wonder if they care. Again, it seems like it's just who cares. Like the stakes are so low, but yeah, in a in a world of things that um, matter a lot, this doesn't matter that much, but it was really yeah. fun.
0: Rough year for the Baldwins.
2: Rough year for the Baldwins. That's true. Yeah.
0: Speaking of rough years, how was your guys' year just to wrap up?
2: Did you have a, was it okay? It was a rough year, I think. I mean, yeah. I think, Year, you know, year two of the pandemic. I think once we sort of realized that, that was that was difficult to come to terms with. And you know, I was thinking back to all of the things that happened over the past two years, and like, what? I'm am amazed that most of us have come, have come through. A, maybe relatively unscathed. I, maybe we don't know how unscathed we really are. But yeah, um, it's been a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally
1: agree with that. It has been, it's been a year after. Like, it's not as bad. I want to be clear, it's not as bad as twenty twenty. That felt truly horrific, but it has been a difficult year. And hopefully, the recommendations that we've provided today kind of help listeners to both process that year or you know head into the new one with at the very least some good art to consume.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, this has been kind of an amorphous year that I, I was confused. It just has had so many different, like, you know, the pandemic has kind of waxed and waned and it never fully ended, obviously. So um, it's been confusing kind of what's been going on. But um we're all learning to live with it and art and reading and watching all those things. You know, help so much. I think um, yeah. give 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 the time, meaning give us catharsis. So, thank thank gosh for those. And I'm looking forward to uh, reading and uh, talking more with both of you next year.
2: Me too. Here's to a better year, everybody.
1: Yeah. Me too. Take care of yourselves, listeners. See you in 2022.
0: You've been listening to our best of 2021 episode. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour and have a happy new year. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levin. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley Lawton.